Father, we praise you for sending your son to die for us. Well, we are so lost without you. And Father, even now, it sometimes feel like, feels like we are lost, even though we know we have you. So Lord, help us this morning change our heart, change our lives. Help us to look more and more like Jesus and give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, Lord, for your glory's sake and for the fame of Jesus. Lord, help us now. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So, how are y'all doing? Yeah. Some of y'all are good. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be carrying on in our series, walking through what's known as the Beatitudes. I, um, I hope that we uh, understand it's not about drumming up an attitude as we look at these things, but it's more of a reflection, a reflection on who we are made to be, and that as we become a believer, we will emulate these things. In other words, if we don't emulate these things, we're probably not really a follower of Jesus. And then over time, we will be shaped more into this image reflected in these Beatitudes, whether I think we say these characteristics because it's exactly who Jesus is for us. And so as we stare into this, we need to always remember that we look into the law of God in the face of Jesus, it's shown with much grace, but we look into the law of God because we're staring at the reflection of God's own person and character here, his self-revelation to us, and that we, if we are his, if we've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus, we are being shaped more and more into that image, made in his likeness, fallen into sin. That image has been distorted in major ways that we are broken. And God begins to heal us and put us back together when he raises us from death to life and makes us born again when we put our hope and faith in Jesus the first moment that that happens. And over time, as he works in us, we see that these things listed out here in Matthew chapter 5, kind of the the introduction of Jesus to his large sermon on the mount, these are the things that should show us who we are and where we are so that we can become more like him. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 3, as we review the ones we've looked already. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, those who are broken spiritually, those who recognize that they are poor spiritually. They have nothing to offer. We are bankrupt. We are spiritual beggars. That God doesn't search us out because we are the diamonds in the rough, but he saves us even though we are rebelling against him. Kind of reminds me of an image that some of you have probably endured at some point as a parent or a kid where the mom or dad picked you up or you picked someone up by the scruff of the neck when they were trying to run away from you, right? or by the arms, whatever they could grab in that moment. Even though your legs were still going, or your kid's legs were still going, and they were trying to get away, and they turned you back to them, and hopefully what they led you in was, hey, I love you, and I love you too much to let you go that way. And that's the way the Father is with us. He doesn't pick us up because we are so great at already loving him, 
But instead, as we are rebelling against him, he reaches out and saves us and gives us faith to believe in him. That his Holy Spirit beckons us and we repent, turn away from sin and turn to the Lord. This is what it means to be a spiritual beggar. And then secondly, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We must understand that if we really see who we are as spiritual beggars, that no one is righteous, no, not one. As we really see what it means to be a sinner and to be one who is in utter rebellion against a holy, righteous, loving God, that it should burden us and break us down emotionally so that we mourn over our sinfulness. That we are mourning over our sin. And this does not end the moment that we become a believer. In fact, as God leads us to see the different layers and depths of sin in our lives, we will mourn over those sins every time he so graciously shows us that we are in need of Jesus even now. And that spiritual mourning leads us to become the third one. You see, they're in order on purpose. One comes before another. And then thirdly, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Once you recognize you bring nothing to the table and you're nothing but a beggar spiritually, and once you are broken over your sin, you then step and walk and talk and live in a way that reveals meekness to those around you. Because you recognize that God is the good one, and we are sinners. You recognize that Jesus is holy and righteous, and we are not. You recognize that he is the one that deserves all the glory and all the credit, and we deserve wrath and condemnation. But because he loves us so much, he gave us Jesus to bring us home. And that should lower our status, even in our own minds and hearts. Hey, and we're okay with that. Because we're to boast only in him. Amen. And the more people see our faults and our failures and they say to us that, hey, you know, you're not acting like you should. You can say, yes, please forgive me. My God is so good. He forgives me. Because I am broken. But he sent me a whole and complete and good and holy Savior to bring me home one day. To save me now, even though I'm a wretched sinner. This is something that's hard for us, even now, I think. But this next one comes right out of it. And it comes to us with something we can relate to, but something that is foreign to us. So I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to ask the Lord to help us once more, and then we're going to kind of unpack it together. But I, this one, if I had to pick a favorite, I mean, I love them all, right? But if I had to pick a favorite, this is probably my favorite. Uh, because it's not who I am, but it's because who I, it's who I want to be. I believe that God is making us into this one as well, if we're in Christ. It says this in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me pray for us again. Father, we are not satisfied. You promise we will be if we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us, Lord. Help us this morning. Reveal our sin that we might repent. Reveal our shortfalls and our shortcomings that we might turn to you and find hope in the one who is perfect. And Lord, help us to rest in the arms of our Savior 
as we see our need and as we speak of your greatness and as you get the glory. Lord, help us this morning that we might live life in such a way that we resemble your son, Jesus. We ask that in his name. Amen. All right, you guys ready? Okay, all right, good. We're going to jump in, and I can tell you right now, it's not going to feel good. Uh, So be ready for that. I hope you brought your uh, boots with the steel toes. Uh, I know that God's been beating me up with this one for weeks in my preparation. In fact, he beats me up regularly with this one, not because he wants to beat me up, but just because he shares truth with us because he loves us. He tells us things about ourselves through his word and by his spirit because he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for not not leaving us to our own devices. I believe that we can relate to this one in such a way that is different than the others. The others, when we we hear we're beggars, we don't like that. When we we think about the fact that we are such bad sinners, we should mourn over our sin regularly and that God will break our heart if we open ourselves to him. We don't really like that. At least I don't like that often. And meekness is seen as weakness in the world, although we've seen last week and we know that meekness is what shows off the power of God through us. And that's part of the glory we get to live out as being meek and submissive to him and even towards others when necessary and possible so that he can get the glory for it. But this one right here I think we can relate to because we actually do hunger and thirst for a lot of things on regular occasions. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like to miss a meal. It's probably obvious. I, I do get hungry, and my body reminds me when I'm hungry. Anybody else? You know, you hear the gurgles or the turns or the little bit of, like, stomach telling you, like, hey, hey, time to eat. You know, wake up. Let's do this thing. Or your throat, like, even right now, you're all going to start getting real thirsty. I, I am thirsty right now. Cotton mouth, reminder, Right? little tickle in your throat, a reminder to show you that you're thirsty. We hunger and thirst all the time, but not just for food. We hunger and thirst for a lot of things that are in the world around us. We hunger and thirst for income. That's why we work so hard to get it. At least some of us work hard, right? That's uh, why we hunger and thirst for things, not just like income. We hunger and thirst for accolades. We want people to notice us and give us a pat on the back. We hunger and thirst for relationships. That's why we strive so hard to make them work, often to our own detriment, because we think we have the way, instead of falling into the scriptures to learn the way. We hunger and thirst for a lot of things because we are, listen to this, I think this is the reason why we are starving for satisfaction. Here's what I mean by that. You take anything in this world, good, bad, ugly, And you think that it's going to satisfy you, and it might be satisfying in a moment, but that satisfaction is always fleeting. And we once again begin to hunger and thirst for satisfaction. You think of the one thing, go back to earlier days, think to when you were 20, 15, 10, 9, 8, whatever the age was, 50, whatever, and think about what was the one thing you thought if you got that thing, you'd finally be satisfied. Was it marriage? Or what comes along with it? Was it the job? Was it the house? Was it the kids? Was it even the pet? (laughs) Was it the accolades? Was it the graduation? Was it just the pay raise, the bump? 
whatever it was you thought would satisfy you, what happened after a little bit of time? It wasn't very satisfying. Now, I know we don't want to say that about our spouses. The problem, though, is not with our spouses. The problem is with us. The spouse, listen, uh, is a little trick I've learned, not trick, is a truth I've learned. Uh, most women seem to marry guys for the potential they see in them. And guys marry ladies because of where they are at that moment. That's why guys, when they get married, they kind of stop and they go, we're here, you know, instead of pursuing like they should. Amen, ladies? Like they should, right? Not that they do. I'm not saying your guy doesn't pursue. But it's just a truth that we find that we're kind of satisfied where we are, but we lose satisfaction quickly. Uh, What's your favorite candy? Anybody? Snickers, Skittles, Mr. Goodbar. Now, that's unique, Roger. Mine is Reese's Cups. And not only Reese's Cups, but in the refrigerator, Reese's Cups. But why in the world did they ever make them just two in a pack? It's never enough. And in fact, the packs of four or the packs of eight are really never enough, you know? I'm never truly, I'm satisfied in the moment, but it's fleeting. You know what I'm talking about because you live this out. Here, let me, let me say this to you. We are created, this is the foundational statement for today, we are created with appetites that long to be satisfied. Those appetites are God-given appetites. They're not bad appetites. Your hunger and thirsting for satisfaction is not bad. In fact, you're made with it. And you're made to find it sated and satisfied, and yet wherever we have looked, it is never truly satisfied. Anything apart from what is made to satisfy us will always be less than satisfying in the long run. We know this to be true. And that, I believe, is why he says here in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's a commanding promise. If you hunger and thirst, listen, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. It's a promise. The question is, what does that mean? Let me say something that might help us understand it. That for which we hunger most is the ultimate object of our worship. You may think, that's crazy. I don't worship Reese's Cups. Well, if we're honest... In the moment when I'm in the store and I spot them, and I think, I've got to have that, that can become an idol in my heart. And I will oftentimes take that idol and put it home, and I'll put it in the door of the refrigerator high enough up where my kids can't reach it, and hopefully even see it. And I'll let them sit for a while, where I almost surprise myself with them later. Like I pretend they're not there, you know? Like we do with other things that we make idols. And then when that hunger builds and builds and builds, finally I'm like, I've got to have the Reese's Cup. Have you ever walked in when your Reese's Cup, whatever your thing is, and you're like, I, mean, I can't wait to have that. I'm going to have that right now. And you get in there and you open it up and it's not there. What happens? What's the emotion you feel in that moment? Anger. Irritation. Yes. Those emotions, oftentimes, when you don't get what you want, can tell you what you've put your heart on. And whatever you set your heart on is what you're worshiping in that moment. Now, we are sinners. We make everything into idols. Our heart is an idol factory, one one reformer stated. 
We continually seek satisfaction in things that are never really able to satisfy us. And the world around us screams that we should seek our satisfaction in primarily one thing, our happiness. In fact, many preachers have turned this set of verses into things about how to get your happiness. They turn the word blessed into happiness. Now, blessings and happiness are not the same thing. We've been talking about that for several weeks. The world is wrong and that you should pursue your happiness. In fact, according to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. You will not find it in scripture that says seek out your happiness. It's always something that results from seeking something else and then you find yourself happy. Joyful even, which is deeper. Seeking to be satisfied by happiness is only going to leave us wanting. But if you think, well, this is what's going to make me happy. Not for long, it won't. C.S. Lewis said it so well. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Let me say that again. And remembering, nothing truly satisfies completely forever on this earth. He says, if I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, the hunger and the thirst of your life that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world is, is a constant beckoning of God to remember that you were made for another world. You were made for life forever with God, and He alone can satisfy. You say to me, why does it say hunger and thirst for righteousness then? I'm so glad you asked. We are starving for that satisfaction. We look for it everywhere. And there is a path to satisfaction, but it is not found in seeking our own happiness. There's a clue in Matthew 6, 33, later in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's that righteousness word. Seek his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this scripture here in 5, 6 tells us only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. A true follower of Christ is always hungry for more righteousness. We're never satisfied with where we are. And if we ever find ourselves satisfied in our own maturity, our own maturation, woe to us. For the Pharisees thought they had arrived when they got to the top of the ladder. And what does Jesus do to the Pharisees? He yells at them because it takes a wake-up call. But let's go back to the meekness last week, right? Submission, humility, brokenness before the Lord, spiritual bankruptcy. We have not arrived this side of heaven. When we do arrive, it's because God removes the sin there again so he gets the glory when we go to be with him. But what's meant by this righteousness? So glad you asked that question again. The first point you have to understand is this righteousness is what is deemed as an alien righteousness. I don't mean as an extraterrestrial in the sense of E.T. or Martians. But it's alien to us. That means it's not found in ourselves. It only comes from God. It's a gift of grace to us. And this need and hunger is continual in us, which reminds us that we need to go to the Lord over and over and over again in this place to be satisfied in Him alone. 
This is really easier to understand when you stack these things on top of each other in verses 3, 4, and 5, and then 6. When you see spiritual beggars have nothing they bring to the table, that we are broken and mourn over our sin, that he does that by grace and kindness to us to see our need for him. Then we submit to him, and then as we seek and hunger for righteousness to be holy because he is holy, then we are satisfied in him. So what does it mean to hunger for that righteousness first? That word hunger, how do we unpack that word? Let me give you two things. I'll break down the second one in a lot of ways. The first thing is it's a hunger for justification. That's our big word, two of them today for you. Justification means to be made right with God, to be justified, to be in relationship with God, to be made right with him. The problem is in the Bible, the biggest problem in the Bible that's there, that's admittedly there is this, that God saves rebels who sin against him, yet he remains just. How does that happen? He forgives people that don't deserve forgiving. That's us. And he does so out of the kindness of his heart. But to remain a just judge, he has to punish sin and rebellion. And so the way he does it is he sends his one and only son, who's worth more than all of us, to stand in our place. And he takes our sin and puts it upon his shoulders. And on the cross, Jesus endures the wrath that we are supposed to endure for all eternity. He endures it all on the cross. And he can do that because he's fully God and fully man. So he endures the wrath and drinks it down to the dregs to the point of death and dies in our place. And then he declares us righteous when he resurrects. Not because of our goodness, but because of his righteousness. So he takes our sin upon himself and he puts his righteousness upon us and clothes us in his righteousness. So that even though we're still sinners in the here and now, when God looks at us, he sees a righteous one. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We've been made right with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, who's our justification. That is righteousness. And that righteousness is also this. It's a hunger for sanctification. That's the other big word. We'll stop with those big words now. You're welcome. A sanctification idea is simply this. That while justification is all God's work, he then beckons us to participate with him in his work in the process of sanctification. So you have been saved whenever God redeemed you and brought you to life, born again. And now you are still being saved as he's changing you more and more into the image of Christ. Not that you lose that at any point in time, it's just you were saved, brought to life, and now he's shaping you into the one he created you to be that's not broken and over time, he makes you look more and more like Jesus, so that if we followed you around with a video camera that starting like two or three years ago and up to now, we would see a steady progression, yes, still failures, but a steady progression of you looking more and more like Jesus because he loves you too much to leave you where you are. Loves you right where you are, enough to save you out of your sin, but loves you too much to leave you that way. So we can break down sanctification into these things, and these are key for you, so I want you to really listen to these and really to take these, if the Holy Spirit pricks your heart on one of these, it's time to make a note of that. And if you want the notes, I can send them to you later, but just make a mental note at least. So what is it to be formed in the image of Jesus, this hunger? It's a starving desire, first of all, to be free from sin. To be free from sin. Are you starving and thirsting to be released from sin, to be free of it? If you're not, there's something wrong. Something's not clicking the way it should click. 
If you're okay with living in sin, then maybe you aren't who you think you are. That's not a judgment on my part. That's what the Word of God talks about. If you are okay with living in the sin in which you are entangled, and you don't mind it and don't want to get away from it, then you are not being shaped into the image of Christ, and therefore your salvation that you think you have might not be real. That's just the truth from the Word of God. Because sin separates us from God, and we've been redeemed. We want to be with God, not separated from Him. Secondly, it's a starving desire to be free from the power of sin. You may think, and I, I was going to give a bunch of scriptures. We'd be here all day if I backed them up. So if you want scripture, I can give you a ton. Email me later, thomaswu at 12.co. I'll be glad to send you stuff. But just trust me and listen to me right now. If you are having this hunger and thirst, you will have a desire, a starving desire to be free from the power of sin. The fact that Paul says stuff like this, he goes, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. This is the struggle of our sin and our flesh. We've been redeemed, and we've been made new, but we still struggle with the flesh until God takes us home and removes that sin from us, and there's power with that. So it's a starving desire to be free of that. Thirdly, it's a starving desire to be free from the very, listen, this is different, from the very desire of sin. It means you are starving to be rid of the hunger for that sin. You know what I'm talking about. There's a sin in your life that keeps popping up on the radar. There's a sin in your life that you keep going back to. We keep going back to the slop in the trough instead of going to the bread of life. And that sin is there and keeps messing with you because there's a desire in you for that sin. And if you love Jesus because he first loved you, you will hate that you desire that. And you will be hungering and thirsting for freedom from that desire. R. Kent Hughes, I love the way he puts things. He says it like this. Listen, this is really good. The man who truly examines himself in the light of the scriptures not only discovers that he is in the bondage of sin, Still more horrible is the fact that he likes it and that he wants it. Just think of the last time you committed that sin. You wanted it in that moment. And then you hated yourself after, probably. This is how sinful we really are. It takes us right back to point one, five, three, right? Blessed are the beggarly spiritual people. Fourthly, it's a starving desire to be holy. It really is. The more one conforms to God's will, the more fulfilled and content they become. But that in turn spawns a greater discontent. Our hunger increases and intensifies in the very act of being satisfied. And we want more holiness. Hey, listen, it's not just sins. There are things in your life, in my life, that we give our time to, we give our heart to, that we give our eyes to, our ears to, we give our lives over to, that are not wrong things, but they distract us from seeking to be with the Lord. We can spend our whole lives doing not bad things and still not be in good relationship with God. You can say, well, I'm doing this really good thing. Yeah, but the greatest thing is to be with the one who loves you so much he gave Jesus to bring you into relationship with him, to be with him. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will walk among you, I'll be with you. 
if we're not spending time facing who he is in the word, if we're not prayerfully discussing life with him, talking with him, sitting at his feet, we are somehow enveloped in things that are either sinful or not sinful, but are distracting and can ruin us from what we're told to do, which is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for those people will be satisfied. Remember this, by the way. Remember, it's an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from within us. It comes only from God. We never can work it up. That's important. Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us of this. I'm not, this is just a fun verse for us, okay? This is really good. I'm going to use a word here that um, you may have to go home and explain. Okay, sorry. Um, but I'm going to use it first here. Some of you already know it. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. That means we can't enter into the presence of God because we are unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That is the thing that was used to stop the bleeding once a month. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, our sins, like the wind, take us away. So our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That means when we do something great and we're like, oh, the Lord is good with me now. He's saying, that thing there is still not good enough. Now, when he looks at us and sees Jesus, he loves us anyway. When he looks at us and sees Jesus because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he loves us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But that righteous deed is like a polluted garment. It is not a prideful thing. It is still below the line. But our hope is not in ourselves or in our good deeds. Our hope alone is in the Lord. He's the one that saves us beggars. So even though we don't have righteousness in and of ourselves, let me bring it home on this. This is the good part. Are you ready for the good news? Okay, thank you, Tommy. Thank you, guys. Here we go. This is the good news. This is the part we're waiting to get to every week because if we stop right there, life stinks when we go home depressed. Amen? Because, I mean, all I did was tell you you've got to work harder and try harder. No matter how hard you try, it's not going to be enough. That stinks. There's other words you could use for it. It's horrible. It's bad. It's not fun. But here's the fun part. Thank you, Lord, that you gave Jesus to become our righteousness on the cross. So we are to strive for righteousness, but we don't have to earn it because Jesus earned all of our good favor on the cross. Jesus, the only righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous, so that we can be clothed in his righteousness, so that our righteousness is actually Jesus. So when we think about how we failed, our Savior didn't. We think about how we've been beat up because of our sinfulness and how much we are horrible beggars and we mourn over our sin, we can look at him and submit to him because he didn't fail and he loved us through death on the cross. And he is now our righteousness. The righteousness we seek can never come from within, but it can always and only come through Jesus. Praise you, Lord. This is good news. Jesus is our righteousness. All right, get ready for an onslaught of verses. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, talking about the coming Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, that's Jesus, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Praise the Lord. 
1 Corinthians 1, 30. Paul says it so well. And because of him, it's right after he says, hey, not many of you were royalty, right? Not many of you were wise, right? Not many of you had something to offer, right? And he says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, who became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption for us. It is so that, this is the reason why, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in him, for he deserves it. Philippians 3, 8 through 9, Paul says a similar thing as what we just heard in Isaiah 64. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Actually, that word is more like count them as dung, trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, in other words, not from being a good person, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There it is again. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He doesn't even just clothe us in it. We become the righteousness of God because of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. This is our hope, our only hope. So let us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Romans 1, last one, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's all of us, unless you're Jewish. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, not by their good deeds, by faith. So if Jesus is our righteousness, then he alone is our way to satisfaction and joy. So look at that verse again, verse, five, verse 6, chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But if Jesus is our righteousness, listen to this. You ready? This is really good. Okay, not, this, is, this is the best part to me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus, for they shall be satisfied. You see, he is the only thing that satisfies. And he's told us this over and over and over again, and we just forget it. And we look for satisfaction in other things. The bottle, the relationship, the whatever, the, the things that aren't bad, TV, whatever it is, the books. We look for satisfaction in those things, and instead, Jesus alone can be satisfying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus, our righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Listen to what Jesus says, John 4, 10, 13, and 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Or I'm going to turn now to... John 6, verse 22. This is a little long, but I want you to listen. Just let the words wash over you here. John 6, 22 and on. 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, for the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. In other words, where he multiplied the loaves, right? Took a few loaves and fed thousands of it. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What an indictment even on us. Hey, Jesus, help me get through this moment. Hey, Jesus, fix this problem for me. Hey, Jesus, would you satisfy me here on this moment right now? I really need you right now. He's saying again to us, you came to me because you got your fill last time, not because I actually worked a miracle and because I'm God, but because you want to be satisfied through something else I can offer you. He says to them, verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Just believe, brothers and sisters. Trust in him. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, Listen, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jews go on and dispute with him, but he says this, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be with me. That means believing in him, feasting on him, hungering for him, thirsting for him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Jesus, for they shall be satisfied. Let me pray for us. Father, we do not hunger for you enough. We can never muster up enough desire, enough awesomeness, enough goodness and good acts in order to make us right with you. But even though we fail over and over, even though we rebel against you and choose sin over and over and over and over and over, you, Lord, love us so much that you sent your one and only holy, righteous son to live the life we could not live and die the death that we deserve. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, that you will redeem them, that you will save them, that you will lead them to repent of their sin and trust in your son, Jesus, alone. And Lord, for the rest of us that know you already, help us to trust in Jesus more. Give us a hunger and a thirst for Christ Jesus, your son, who gives the water that satisfies forever, who gives the bread of life that will leave us full and satisfied when nothing else will. 
Help us not be distracted, Lord, with all the things that so quickly entangle us. But Lord, instead, help us to find our hope alone in the one who loved us so much that he was willing to die in our place. So now, Lord, help us to lift up Jesus high in who we are in Christ and in what we do in submitting to you and what you do through us for your glory by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in his holy name we ask and pray these things. Amen.